All right, this is our last, our last message in the Liberties in Christ series, which uh, has promoted quite a bit of fun discussion out there on the patio and uh, has shaken people a little bit. It's good to be stirred up sometimes. It's good to have uh, your thoughts challenged and make you go back and search the scriptures and find out what they actually say. Well, we are looking at uh, Christian liberties, and uh, I didn't want to go too fast because if you go too fast, you kind of leave things undone, and this is going to be kind of the cleanup message where we go through and kind of pull all the little odds and ends in that uh, relate to Christian liberties, summarize what we've said, and kind of uh, do some examples of applying uh, what we've learned to some different cases in point. We started off by addressing motivations, because motivations are at the heart of of your liberties in Christ. What, when you decide to exercise a liberty, there's always some sort of motive. And what is your motive? Um, what is that motive? And we talked about how there's actually six motives for good, too bad. The, the good motives are the glory of God, a desire to obey biblical mandates and biblical principles and to have personal convictions. And these are all fine. Then we list two bad kinds of motivations, which would be legalism, which we talked about uh, can come in three forms, thinking you can be saved by your works or going through the motions of Christianity, but not out of love and devotion to God. And third, by elevating your personal convictions uh, to the same authority as scripture and basically turning them into biblical mandates and trying to compel other people to live by your convictions. And finally, we looked at lust and selfish desire. Some people just do things, even though they profess to know Christ and may even know Christ, not of lust and selfish desire. Everybody has to deal with that. So this morning, I want to accomplish four things. First, I want to review some critical texts which uh, just tell us about how to use our liberties. Second, I want to address some important questions and concepts related to Christian liberties. Third, I want to remind you of the primary principles we have learned from the Bible that will guide us in exercising our Christian liberties. And fourth, I want to give you some examples of how to apply what we've learned to a select few Christian liberties. So the first thing we want to do is you need to keep in mind the scriptures which specifically address Christian liberties. Now, last week, we kind of raced through four different chapters. And what I want to do, if you want to turn to Romans 14, I just want to point out some key texts. And each of these key texts teaches us something about exercising our Christian liberties. That uh, the one thing we need to keep in mind as we go through these passages is I want you to notice how many of these passages relate to you thinking about other people, which we learned is another way of saying love. Love is concerned about other people. Love does what's best for an other people. Uh, love is other focus, other centered. It's not self-centered. Um, and so it's not selfish. All right, look at Romans 14, 5. Paul says, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. This is the example he's given. Uh, you could you could put any liberty you want here. He's just talking about, you know, you want to worship on Sunday, somebody else wants to worship on Saturday, some, you know, Tuesday through Thursday, whatever. He says, here's the here's the guiding principle. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. When it comes to you exercising a liberty you have in Christ, you must be fully convinced in your own mind. That is just an overarching principle. Look down at verse 7. 
For not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. He goes on to explain how we are to live and die for the Lord. So when you're exercising your liberties, you do it for who? For Christ. Look at 1413. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. Again, he's not talking about all judging. Remember, all of these texts are talking about context dealing with Christian liberties. Don't go judging other people who exercise their liberties differently from you. And whatever you do, don't put an obstacle or stumbling block or hinder someone else's growth or faith in the Lord. Look at verse 15 of Romans 14. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with food him for whom Christ died. And you can put in place of food there any liberty. Do not destroy with your liberty him for whom Christ died. And if you do harm somebody else in the exercise of your liberty and you don't need to, you do it purposely without thought for them. You're not walking according to love. Romans fourteen nineteen. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That is how you are to exercise all of your liberties. Verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. Again, a principle we've already seen repeated again. Romans 14, 23. But he who doubts is condemned. That is, uh, it's talking about he who doubts if he eats certain foods. It's just the example being used. But you could talk about any liberty. He who doubts in exercising any liberty... Uh, because he is eating or exercising his liberty is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. For sure, if you're going to exercise a liberty, you cannot do it to the violation of your conscience. If your conscience is saying, don't, 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 and you do it anyways, that's a sin. Not because the liberty is forbidden in scripture, because defiling your conscience is forbidden in scripture. Romans 15, 1 through 3. Now, we who are strong, that is strong in the faith, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, that is in the faith, and not just please ourselves. Notice the other-centeredness here. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approach you fell on me. Again, have love as a primary focus, edification, building up of other people. You can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And remember, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 all talk about Christian liberties. And in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, we read this. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So, yes, you can do things, but... Again, this is the third or fourth time mentioned in these key verses. First Corinthians eight thirteen. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, there's another time I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And Paul is not saying I'm going to become a vegetarian, but I'm never going to eat meat again in front of this person who takes offense at my eating meat. Okay. And he's talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols in first Corinthians nine, 19 to 23. Going on to the next chapter, Paul says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. There's the principle thinking of others first, conforming your liberties for the benefit of others so that I may win more. He's got evangelistic emphasis here to the Jews. I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though 
not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law to those who are without the law as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ so that I may win those who are without law to the weak. I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And here we see again, an evangelistic emphasis. Paul is saying, listen, you know, I have this desire to reach somebody for Christ. I'm not going to, you know, exercise an optional liberty that might hinder that process. If you turn down to first Corinthians 10 verse 23, and 24, Paul says, all things are lawful for lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Paul says, sure, I have things I can do. I know I'm free in Christ to do certain things, but some things that I'm free to do in Christ are not profitable. And yes, I'm free to do things, but not all of them edify. And so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to just try and seek my own good, but I'm going to seek the good of my neighbor in exercising my liberties. First Corinthians 10, 32. Look there. Paul says, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. And here he lists, lists three categories, unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Gentiles and believers in the church of God. And so I'm going to make sure if I can to try and please all of them and please God in the process. In Philippians chapter two, as Paul is discussing the problem of disunity in the church of Corinth and how different people were kind of polarizing, which always happens when there's some sort of disunity, there's kind of the, you know, maybe a little faction or grumblers who kind of move off into their own little corner to, you know, state their purpose. Paul is addressing this kind of behavior and he says this, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, all of those texts, almost exclusively, all deal with you thinking about other people, which is quite amazing because usually when you talk to somebody who wants to exercise their liberty, they're only thinking about who? Themselves. They're thinking about themselves. I want to do this. This is something I like. It's something that gives me pleasure. And I can do this. And the Bible says, so I, me, my. And the whole point is, is I, me, my does not work good. If you want to do what the Bible says, which all these texts clearly show an other loving focus. God has no problem with us doing things we are free to do, but he wants to do it for the benefit edification of others, their salvation, not just for ourselves. Okay, having established that, moving on. Secondly, you need to remember some important principles related to Christian liberties. And these are kind of random uh, principles. They don't really come in texts dealing with Christian liberties, but they definitely apply, and you'll see why as I go through them. These texts are, or principles or concepts are really important because as you begin to talk to people in exercising certain liberties, you realize that a lot of them haven't considered these things. The first principle or concept is this. Guard your heart when exercising your liberties. Guard your heart. 
We know that Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart or guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And the proverb just teaches this, that everything you do, everything you think, all comes from your heart, from within. So one of the most important things you can do as a believer is protect, guard your heart, so that it is not influenced to do evil. All right. Now, having said that, think of all the dangers involved in the exercise of certain Christian liberties. For instance, uh, you know, smoking uh, is bad for you or, or drinking alcohol or watching movies or television or gambling or dancing or listening to secular music or many other liberties. They, they contain some element of danger. And as a matter of fact, the reason that a lot of people think these activities are sin is because they understand the danger. They don't even want to get close to the danger. And so then they make a rule that it's a sin because of the danger involved with it. But, you know, driving cars is dangerous. You know, there's a lot of things that are dangerous. And uh, people have choked, you know, eating yummy food. Uh, you know, that that's, can be dangerous, uh, eating your food too fast. And so, but some people, you can understand, they see these things, they see the dangers associated with these things, and so it's like... It's all of it's wrong. Okay. Uh, everyone knows that those who uh, make it a habit to drink alcohol often get drunk and alcohol uh, uh, leads to an epidemic of other, other sins. And in our world is many people are enslaved to alcohol. Uh, you can talk to any police officer and say, how many crimes are involve alcohol? And they'll say, well, about all of them. About all of them. People get drunk, they lose control, and then they do stupid things. Sinful things. Everyone knows how much trash is on TV or at the movies. How easy it is to have something put before your eyes or ears that is carnal or unedifying. You need to guard your heart. Gambling is, you know, a sin that, uh, uh, not necessarily a sin. Gambling is a practice that many engage in. Uh, which leads to many other sins. Uh, many people have and are being ruined by gambling. We have people in this congregation who are just so enslaved to gambling, it ruined their life. And they can give you testimony to that. Many forms of dancing are sensual and erotic, and many secular songs have lyrics that are abominable. And you have to consider these things before you say, well, this is a liberty and I can do it because the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not listen to secular music. Well, there's a lot of difference between some of this music that's out there that glorifies doing sin and, you know, a piece of classical music or whatever. There's a great difference. But whatever you do, don't lie to yourself and try to justify your participation in some liberty by saying, hey, listen, you know, I'm strong in Christ and I've got my liberty and it's not going to hurt me. You need to remember what Paul said in the context of exercising Christian liberties in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he take, he stands, take heed that he does not fall. Don't be the person who says, oh yeah, I can handle this. And then your pride leads to your fall. Remember what Peter tells his readers in 2 Peter 3.17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. See, you may have the right from the word of God to exercise a liberty. But there are others who exercise that liberty to an excess or to a, 
a sinful state. And when you exercise your liberty, you may be paired up with them and they want to go farther than the scriptures and they would lead you. These unprincipled men will lead you into the very sin that you hope to escape. Secondly, don't live on the edge of the cliff or encourage others to do so. This is such a huge principle. What I mean by this is you should never exercise a liberty to the place where it takes you to the very precipice of sin. You know, you want to exercise your liberty as far as you possibly can and stop one millimeter short to live right on the edge of the cliff so you don't fall off. You know, I'm going to drink as much alcohol as I can and stop stop one drop short of being drunk. Oh, come on. Many justify the extra glass of wine or beer and soon they're not under the influence of the Holy Spirit anymore. They're clearly violating scripture. They're drunk. They have fallen off the cliff because they wanted to live on the edge of the cliff. Anyone who has come to Christ out of a life of drinking can tell you stories of, of the young lady or the young man who in their pride say, I know how much alcohol I can handle. By the end of the night, they're slobbering drunk. They've fallen off the edge. I've had students ask me how physical they can get with their boyfriend or girlfriend. You know, they want to avoid sexual immorality, but they want to go as far as they can. They want to live on the edge of the cliff. And just asking that question betrays a very faulty mindset. Not a mindset that says, how can I not fall off the cliff, but I want to just go to the very edge and live there. Picture yourself standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon. I mean, you've been looking forward to going to the Grand Canyon to see the beautiful sights and you want to see how when the flood wrought waters received, it carved that huge canyon and to see the national monument and all the different colors of stone. And you were so excited about that. And so you come up to me and you say, Jack, let me ask you, how far can I hang my toes off the edge of the rim of that canyon without falling off? I can't tell you. I don't know how good your balance is. I don't know what kind of shoes you're wearing. I don't know what conditions the ground is like at the edge of the canyon in that place. I don't know if there's a breeze. I don't know how strong the breeze is. I don't know what direction the breeze is blowing and how well you're paying attention. But I can tell you this. If you stand 10 feet back, you'll never fall off. Even if you fall down. And this is how we need to understand our liberties is that we need to make sure that we aren't living on the edge of the cliff that we are exercising to the limits because the people who live on the edge of the cliff they fall off sooner than later and even if you lose your balance if you're back 10 feet so you fall on the ground you are not destroyed you can still see plenty of the canyon from 10 feet back So the right question to ask is, how far can I stand back so I never fall off? And so when those young people ask me that question, how far can I go physically without falling into immorality? It's what can you do? The question is not how far can I go, but where do I need to stand so I never fall? 
That is the right question. That is the question that wants to give glory to God, that wants to maintain purity and holiness. Don't live on the edge of the cliff. You will fall off if you do. Thirdly, don't take into don't be taken into bondage by the legalism of others. This is something that was brought up, I think, in our first message. I, I, met, I mentioned, we read, went through Matthew 15, or maybe it was the last message, I don't know. Anyways, when we talked about legalism. And there was the one text in there where Jesus gave offense to the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 15, 12, we read, The disciples came to him, that is Jesus, and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Well, of course Jesus knew that. Jesus called them hypocrites. He said, oh, you're violating the scriptures by keeping your traditions. Of course that was offensive. They were very offensive. Now you might wonder this. Well, then why didn't Jesus become all things to all men for these Pharisees to try and win them over? Why did he give them offense? You know, why didn't he do what Paul told us to do? Because we all know that Jesus is the one who taught Paul what to do so he could tell us what to do. So how come he didn't do what Paul said? What we've, we've looked in all these scriptures. Here's the reasons. First, these Pharisees were religious hypocrites. Who were leading others into their sin. Jesus in Matthew 23, 15, speaking of the same group says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land and make one proselyte or convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. These Pharisees were pretending to be religious leaders. They were actually unbelieving false teachers. They had huge influence and they were leading many other Jews into their hypocrisy. And we are never to tolerate false teaching. Never to put up with people who are leading other people into sin. Those people need to be exposed and rebuked. And we're not talking about the immature brother or sister in Christ who, you know, doesn't know what the Bible says and thinks some liberties a sin. And, you know, they're trying to pursue the Lord and they're not judging anybody. But isn't this sin? I mean, we're not talking about that person. We're not talking about the person who has uh, some background, maybe, you know, alcoholism, let's just say. And they don't want to have anything to do with drinking. And so to them, this is bad and you should stay away from it. We're not talking about that person. We're talking about the person who pretends to be a teacher, a religious leader, one who has influence, trying to lead other people into sin, into a false holiness, into legalism. Those people need to be exposed and rebuked. So you need to take Jesus' warning in Luke 12, 1, to heart, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The Judaizers fell into this category. The Judaizers were a group of people who professed to know Christ. They were hanging around the church, but they said, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. But I want you to know, you have to keep the law of Moses. You have to keep these traditions. And if you don't, you're sinning and you'll go to hell. And so in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. 
Bondage to what? Bondage to the law of Moses. Bondage to their traditions. Bondage to things that Christians don't have to obey. And we know that Peter actually fell in to this thing. And Paul then had to rebuke the apostle Peter to his face in front of the whole church. Because he fell into the sin of the Judaizers. They were leaders. They were treacherous. They were leading others into sin and bondage. And you never want to become like somebody like that. There comes a time when you have to stand up for the health of the believers against these people who are false teachers. And sometimes the rebuke and exposure of them is more important than just, you know, trying to win them to Christ. Yes, they need, need, they need to learn Christ, but not at the expense of teaching other people false doctrine or being a bad example. Paul goes on to say in the text, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. When it came to either catering to these Judaizers, And trying to win them to Christ or being a bad example and exposing the church to their false doctrine. Paul just said, we didn't yield to them for a second, not for an hour. We didn't even go there. And of course, we've read in 1 Corinthians how Paul tried to never give an offense and tried to be a Jew around the Jews, under law, to those under the law, Gentile, he's around Gentiles. I mean, you know, he tried to do his best to win people to Christ. We're not talking about that. He didn't want to cause any unnecessary offense in his evangelistic efforts, but he never tolerated those teaching false doctrine to the body of Christ. And neither did Jesus. Moving on. Third, you need to keep in mind biblical principles to guide your use of Christian liberties. So we've got these little three principles here. Now we're moving on to big point number three. You need to keep in mind the biblical principles to guide your use of Christian liberties. And what I did is, if you look, if you take sermon notes or if you don't, on the back of your sermon note page, you will find this little truth grid I've constructed. I did this because a lot of people said, could you, could you, could you write those down? Could you send me those? I said, next week, I'll just give you the whole batch. And yet you could just keep this in your Bible if you want. This is kind of your own little tool. This is very generic. And you can run any Christian liberty through this grid. These are taken from the scriptures we've looked at. So, you know, let's say you want to engage in cigar smoking. You know, you're 60 years old. You've never smoked. And you realize, you know, I have a liberty here. I wonder if I should take up cigar smoking. And, you know, that sounds kind of fun. Sitting at home in a closed room, puffing on a big green cigar. Okay, so you're going to try, but you know, I better consider whether or not this is a wise thing to do. So I'm now going to run it through the truth grid. First, are you fully convinced in your own mind that your liberty is acceptable to God and not contrary to the scriptures? Secondly, can you engage in this activity and still guard your heart and keep it pure? Third, are you exercising your liberty for the Lord and his glory? Fourth, in exercising your liberty... Will you be in the presence of someone who thinks your liberty is forbidden in scripture? Five, will you be exercising your liberty in love, considering others before yourself? Six, will you by, will you by exercising your liberty harm, destroy, or put a stumbling block before someone else's faith? Seven, if you exercise your liberty, will it cause what is a good thing uh, to you to be spoken of as evil? Eight, in exercising your liberty, will you edify and build others up? 
Nine, is exercising your liberty going to help or hinder your ability to win others to Christ? Ten, will exercising your liberty tempt you to sin or put you into a position to be easily tempted to sin? That is, is it going to cause you to live in the edge of the cliff? Eleven, can you exercise your liberty and still maintain peace? That is, peace with other believers? Twelve, is it wise for me to exercise this liberty if I am or have been enslaved or mastered by this activity? Thirteen, are you taking into consideration your position and influence in the body of Christ? Leaders need to be extra careful in the exercise of their liberties as they are high-profile examples to all. And of course, I gave scriptures for every one of these statements, and they're all there, and you can just look them up and decide. You get through the grid, your conscience is clear, go for it. And depending on who you are, depending on your weeks, on your weaknesses, on your strengths, on your knowledge of the scriptures, you're going to, and you're even your context, you're going to answer these questions sometimes different for yourself. And of course, other people are going to have different answers. And the reason there is so much talk about Christian liberties in the scriptures is because here we all are, all at different levels, all with different convictions, and we need to live with each other in unity, not tolerating sin, but being accepting of those who have convictions about certain liberties differently than we do. There are times when you may exercise your liberty and then discover after the fact that some weaker brother or sister in Christ is is stumbling because of what you're doing, and then you probably want to stop since the scriptures command you to do so. There may be times when you're exercising your liberty and you may have found out that you have offended a legalist and you have actually boiled the legalist up to the surface. Then you need to use that time to rebuke them. You need to understand, though, that when Paul tells us not to cause a weaker brother to stumble, he is not saying, don't do anything, anytime, in any place that might cause somebody somewhere to stumble. He's not saying that. If that was the case, there are believers and unbelievers around the world who take offense on almost everything. You couldn't do anything. Exercise any liberty. You know, because there is this guy in Australia, this person in Zimbabwe or Nepal that has a problem with this activity. No, what Paul is talking about is three things. One, if you know you are going to be around somebody who is weak in faith who would take offense at your exercising some certain liberty, then don't do it for their sake. Don't give unnecessary offense. Or, if you are fairly certain, and the probabilities are high, that you will run into someone who is weaker in the faith, don't exercise your liberty. Remember Paul's example of the idol temple? idol diner now here you have this you know temple to artemis people offering sacrifices in the back of the temple is you know the artemis barbecue and grill and the artemis meat shop well he you know he clearly says listen that meat doesn't get idol cooties on it okay if you eat it it's not going to give you idol cooties okay that's fine you can go get a slab of meat and go cook it up that's fine uh, if somebody else you think got some meat from there, don't even ask any questions. Just eat it. But he says, you know, you probably wouldn't want to go into the idol temple, sit down, order up lunch, 
and eat there in the idol temple. Because here comes Joe, weaker believer, who's in your town. He sees you in that, that idol restaurant, and he's thinking you're worshiping the idols and that you're supporting idolatry by eating the food. And so he says, don't do that. Don't do that. Or three, you are going to evangelize someone you know has certain convictions and doesn't have knowledge about the liberties that Christians have. And so you decide to cater, deny yourself certain things in order to not offend them. You're having a Jewish person over or a Hindu over. And and you make sure you try not to serve food that's going to offend them or do things that are trying, you know, why? Why why exercise an optional liberty to the offense of somebody and hinder the gospel? I mean, that, you know, that's foolish. So don't do that. Don't do that. But let's say you take a vacation to Belgium where men like to smoke cigars and drink beer after church on the steps of the church. And there you are, Sunday. It's a beautiful day in Belgium. You're visiting. The sermon was okay. The fellowship's good. And they're all having beer and cigars. And you think to yourself, you know, I'm not doing the beer thing. But, you know, I could probably smoke a cigar. I know it's okay. And... I don't think I'm going to offend anybody here. I'm halfway around the world. So then you light up that big fat green cigar and you're puffing away and turning as green as the cigar. (laughs) And just as you're standing there with all these other believers, all of a sudden you hear, John, John, is that you, John? And lo and behold, it is Bob chairman of the clean air anti-smoking league at home (laughs) and bob is obviously offended because you're smoking and bob has been campaigning and though he is a fairly new believer he is so against smoking he had two relatives you know who who died of lung cancer And he has tried to get you on the Clean Air Committee and Anti-Smoking League multiple times. And you've graciously denied him. And now he sees you smoking. And not only smoking, but a cigar and on the steps of a church. And he says, I can't believe you're smoking at church. And he gets angry. He says, you hypocrite. And he stomps off in disgust. Now, have you sinned? No. The chances of you running into Bob in Belgium are very remote. (laughs) You were with other brothers and sisters in Christ and your other brothers were doing the same thing. Yes, you have given offense, but not intentionally. Chances were small. So when Paul says, do not exercise your liberty so that it causes another to stumble, he's not saying, don't ever do anything anywhere, anytime, that somebody someplace around the world at some point would have an offense he's just saying listen if you know somebody or you're pretty sure that somebody then don't do it don't do it finally next major point you are to learn how to apply god's truth to the use of your christian liberties how to apply God's truth. Now, what we're going to do now is we're just going to just dive into a couple liberties that people have. And I'll just kind of show you the process. Now, 
I can't go through the whole truth grid on each of these, so we're just going to talk just talk about some reasoning, kind of reason through. Then we're going to start with smoking. We've used smoking as multiple examples, and some people have kind of freaked out and even come up to me after church and say, Jack, I can't believe you're telling people to go smoke. I said, well, I never said that. All they heard was, is smoking is not a sin. Therefore, you're telling people to smoke. No, no, I'm not. As a matter of fact, I would tell you not to smoke. But I wouldn't tell you it's a sin to smoke. So let's talk about smoking, since we have used it as an example. Everybody knows smoking's bad for your health, leading contributor to heart disease, number one cause of lung cancer. Everybody knows that secondhand smoke is also very dangerous. That people don't, who don't smoke don't like breathing the smoke of people who do. So we all know that. That's basic. Now, can you say that by exercising your liberty to smoke, you are loving other people and doing what is best for them? You know, 1 Corinthians 13, think about others, do what is best for them, all those verses. Are you observing the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you by smoking? You say, well, Jack, I, I'm only going to smoke in private, in my smoking chamber, whatever. Uh, it was, it was interesting is uh, my wife and I, we rented an apartment when we were first married that actually had a smoking room in it. It was pretty classic. Um, in first Corinthians six, 19 through 20, it talks about your body being the temple of the Holy spirit and that you are no longer your own. Your body is no longer your own for you have been bought with a price. So the question is, can you smoke knowing the consequences of smoking and be taking good care of Christ's body that he has lent you to use for his glory as a holy sacrifice. Or you might ask yourself, is this a violation of the sixth commandment? Thou shall not kill. Since smoking has killed many. Or you might say, well, are you being a good example to others? Titus 2, 6 through 8. Likewise, I urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified sound and speech, which is beyond reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Can you be a good example and be a smoker? Can you be smoking without being enslaved to smoking? I mean, everybody knows that stopping smoking is a very difficult deal. It is enslaving. There's a, probably a billion dollar industry just trying to get people to break the enslavement to tobacco, nicotine. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Can you smoke and not be mastered by it? The 10th commandment is thou shall not covet. Can you be enslaved to smoking and not covet cigarettes. I mean, I grew up with parents, two parents who smoked, and when they ran out of cigarettes, they went into a panic. You know, it's like, run down the street to so-and-so and get me a pack of cigarettes. They were desperate. Consider the time and energy and money and effort expended by those uh, who smoke, and ask yourself, is this energy being used, this thought, this all of this Effort to increase in holiness or to support their habit. You know, is this a violation of the first commandment? Thou shall have no other gods before me. Is supporting smoking a habit of wise stewardship? 
I mean, the Bible all talks about these things. Have you ever approached somebody begging you on the street? Hey, you know, do you got a few bucks or whatever? And they have a package of cigarettes in their pocket. They don't have enough money for food. But they have enough money for cigarettes. What is that? And please, I am not trying to regulate anyone's conscience here. If you smoke, fine. I'm just trying to ask. I'm just asking questions and quoting scriptures. Plucked out of context, mind you. (laughs) And you need to be fully convinced in your own mind. That's all. If you can do it, praise God. I mean, I've had people light up around me. I don't care. I mean, it's like, you know, whatever. I grew up in a house where I got up and there was nothing but a big thick layer that I kind of walked through. (laughs) Oh, well. We're going to die of lung cancer and I never smoked. Okay, let's switch. What about drinking alcohol? Here's another biggie. Should Christians drink alcohol? Well, let's just kind of go through the different texts on this. So you're thinking, well, you know, is all drinking sin? Well, in biblical times, wine was used for medicinal purposes. You know, 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul had Timothy drink some wine for his stomach. We see the same thing in Proverbs 31.6-7. We are told to give strong drink to him whose life is perishing and wine to the man whose life is bitter. I've never tried this approach. I can see you're having problems. Here's some wine. (laughs) The good Samaritan in Luke 10.34 used wine to help treat the injured man's wounds. So yeah, no doubt. Wine was used for medicinal purposes. And, you know, if you ever take something like NyQuil, it's got alcohol in it. So, bingo. But wine and strong drink were common beverages at the time. Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ, and Abraham enjoyed some wine together in Genesis 14:18. In 1 Samuel 25:18, Abigail, who became David's wife, gave wine to David and his men to drink. Solomon paid off the king of Tyre with a debt with 20,000 baths of wine, which is 115,000 gallons. Do you think that's all the wine they produced? <laughs> no. I'm sure they produced much more than that, and most of the people drank it. Daniel drank wine as a normal practice, according to Daniel 10.3. Nehemiah drank wine, according to Nehemiah 5.18. Levites drank wine, according to Nehemiah 13.5. Jesus and John 2 made 150 gallons of good age wine after the people at the wedding feast had consumed all the other wine that the host had provided. In the millennial kingdom, God promises in Isaiah 25.6 to have a banquet with all of his saints with age wine, a big wine tasting party. Get that. Remember in the upper room when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, Luke twenty two eighteen, for I say to you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Yes, Jesus said, wine with the apostles up there in the upper room and said, I'm not going to drink any more wine until my kingdom. In addition to that, You need to realize to tell someone they must abstain from certain foods in order to be holy is to teach the doctrine of demons, according to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. All those texts and others can be used to justify drinking alcohol. I mean, you can justify it. Yeah, okay. Here's, I've got example, I've got precept, I've got, you know, whatever. What more do you need? But as we have learned, when you exercise your liberty, you have to be thinking of who? Other people, not yourself. So, you start going through some of the things we've learned about this morning. Does drinking have any dangers? 
You bet. Lots of them. Leading factor in crime, abuse, and a million other sins and a reprobate society. Ephesians 5.18 clearly says being drunk with wine is a sin. What is getting drunk? The problem is the Bible doesn't say. It says do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a control issue there. God doesn't want your life being controlled by alcohol. He wants it being controlled by the spirit. I don't know how much you can drink of any certain beverage and not be. I don't even know how much I could drink. I don't know. You know, I don't know if drunkenness is, is, is just if you feel any effects of alcohol or when it just really starts affecting you. I don't know. I don't know. But remember the cliff principle. Remember the cliff principle. Don't go to the edge of the cliff. Many examples can be gathered from scriptures And from the world of the folly of drunkenness and alcohol has contributed to many, many base sins. Isaiah 5.11 says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. He goes on to say in verse 22 of the same chapter, Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. In Proverbs 21.17, we read, He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. And I just thought about that, that the reason people drink is because of the pleasure, right? They get this pleasurable sensation. And so they drink. And I thought, you know, what would happen to the whole alcoholic beverage or industry if they removed all the alcohol from all those beverages? I mean, who would drink, you know, whiskey and tequila and gin if they had no alcohol? You know, if none of those things gave you a buzz and got you drunk, who, who would engage in that? I'm telling you, it would be the ruin of the industry. People would switch over to other drugs. Because they're not after the taste so much, they're after the effect. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35 says, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red and when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, at last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on top of a mast. They struck me. But I did not become ill. They beat me. I didn't know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. That's such a perfect description of an alcoholic. Blacking out, beat up. It's like, what? Where'd I get these bruises? Yeah. Leviticus 10 9, right after God struck Nadab and Abihu dead after offering strange fire, God says, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute through all throughout all generations. And his whole point is this When you're serving me, I don't want you messing up. Because Nadab and Abihu just had offered strange fire, and very probably they were drinking. And God killed them. So he says, when you enter my service, you're serving in the tabernacle, don't drink any wine. I don't want your judgment impaired at all. In the millennial temple, 
spoken of in Ezekiel 44, 21. Ezekiel says the priests who serve God don't drink wine there either. In Proverbs 31, 4 through 7, we read, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. When you're a ruler and you are making decisions that impact other people and affect their lives, you have to be careful, ever so careful, not to pervert the justice of those who are already afflicted by forgetting what was decreed or decreeing something that would bring them more unnecessary harm. Add to this the culture we live in. What does our culture believe about Christians and drinking? And what about weak believers who have been trained by the culture and not the scriptures? And what about the dangers of drinking? And what about the epidemic of drunkenness in our world? And the people who often glorify this, you know, is this a wise thing to do? There are many other things you can drink that don't have any dangers associated with them that are tasty. Why not drink one of them that has no dangers? What is the wisdom behind drinking things that have dangers when you can drink many things that don't, unlike biblical times? And the answer is, let each one be fully convinced in their own mind. That's it. Now, moving on. Tattoos. Here's a good one. Tattoos. Yeah, I thought, you know, I got to pick some ones here. They're fun. I have some pe- parents come to me and they say, you know, my kid wants to get a tattoo. Now he's asking them, why? I don't know. Why don't you ask them? Why don't you ask them? What's the motive? Start with motives. Why get a tattoo? To attract attention to yourself? Is that a biblical motive? To be more like the world? Is that biblical? To appear to be cool? Is that biblical? Now, for those of you who are out there who don't have tattoos and are saying, I have never got a tattoo, do you dye your hair? Why? Do you like to wear stylish clothing? Why? That super cool new pair of sneakers? The latest sunglasses? Yeah, the question is, okay, okay, we all do things because, you know, this is what the world says is cool. And the question is, is is the tattoo thing cool? Is it a legitimate motive? Coolness. <laughs> you have to ask yourself these things. You know, what's really funny is, you know, I used to be a fanatic fly fisherman and fly fishermen wear a certain kind of gear. And the more cool gear you have, the more cool you are as a fly fisherman. I want you to know, I I liked the cool gear because I want to be cool. And when you're a bow hunter, you know, I want you to know, I was a bow hunter. And so, you know, bow hunters, they they wear certain gear and do certain things. And that's what cool bow hunters do. And you want to be a cool bow hunter. You want to have the, you know, widget and the dress and the hat and the camo, camo, a certain kind of camo and whatever. Now, everybody has a, you know, a certain thing that if you're into this thing or this hobby, whatever, this is kind of the cool thing. And, you know, those things are all right, but you need to go through the grid and ask yourself is okay. So you now want to get a tattoo or your kid does. The question is, is I started thinking about this 10 or 15 years ago. What kind of people uh, got tattoos? Well, drunken sailors. You know, you wake up in the morning and, you know, anchor on one side with mom on it and the mermaid on your bicep on the other. Where did I get these? Prisoners. Bikers. You know, those are the people like, whoa, this guy's got a tattoo. Uh, The question is, you, you want to follow those people? 
These are people who didn't want to conform to society. People who wanted to be different and, and stick out. And so they get tattoos. And I always wonder, you know, what's that woman going to look like when she's 65 and has that big tattoo on the back of her neck? So it's still going to be cool then. <laughs> and again, if you don't have any tattoos, don't be self-righteous and condemn others for being discontent with their plain skin if you're discontent with your dress or your hair color or your hairstyle or with your car or with your whatever see so we're so easy to pick on certain liberties and go yeah you're yeah yeah but i've got to have this kind of car the only text that addresses tattoos explicitly is Leviticus 19.28, which says, You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. Now, we are not under the law of Moses, but you need to ask yourself, what is the timeless truth or principle behind you shall not make any tattoo marks on yourself? I am the Lord. Moving on, dancing. <laughs> let each one be fully convinced in his own mind and don't come up after me afterwards and say well can i or not let everyone be convinced in his own mind i know what i'm gonna do and i know the reasons you have to decide go through the grid dancing what about dancing well first of all consider there's all kinds of dancing okay and there's all kinds of motives for dancing and you can find a examples of evil and good kinds of dancing in the scriptures and outside of the scriptures and some kinds of dancing are very erotic and very sensual and it would be difficult if not impossible to justify these sensual erotic kinds of dancing you know what about dancing that is kind of a uncontrolled physical hysteria what about that does that give glory to god scriptures say we are to live soberly and be in control. So does that fit into that? Does uncontrolled physical hysteria, sensual gyrations fit into the parameters of what the scriptures say? And the music accompanying dances. And again, music's a whole other thing. Edward will have to preach on that. Um, but a lot of the lyrics that go along with a lot of kinds of dancing, are, the, the lyrics are just abominable. And you need to ask yourself if you can do something that's a liberty to the tune of something which is celebrating something God hates. I don't know. I couldn't think of one tune that praises the name of God that people like to dance to. Now think about that. Next time you're, yeah, you're seeing dancing or listen to the lyrics and say, you know, is this glorifying to God or not? On the other hand, there are all kinds of da- forms of dancing, you know, clogging and square dancing and line dancing, you know, maybe ballet, but then you'd have to deal with the dress issue, which uh, we're not going to talk about either. Um, and these kind of dancings are, are more organized and, you know, not necessarily sensual or erotic. They don't in- encourage some sort of physical hysteria. To justify some kinds of dancing, you could look at Exodus 20:15, where Miriam danced and praised to God, or 2 Samuel 6, where David dances before the ark, or Psalm 30, verse 11, where the psalmist says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. Or Psalm 149:3, Let them praise his name with dancing. Oh, a command. Let them sing praises to him with tremble and leer. Psalm 150, verse 4, praise him with tremble and dancing. Another command, praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. 
That's what it says. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says there is a time to dance. The master who represented Christ in the parable of the prodigal son had a dance for his son when he returned home. Luke 15, 25. And you need to ask yourself if dancing in praise to God has anything to do with erotic, sensual, you know, physical hysteria type dancing. I mean, you need to ask yourself that. And whether or not these scriptures I've just read have anything to do with that. And the music sung to engage in these kinds of dancing has anything to do with that. And you don't just say, well, I just want to do this. And so I'm going to do this. And this is what I want. And that's all there is to it. It's no, that's not all there is to it. We've just gone through a zillion scriptures would say, you need to think of other people. You need to run it through the truth grid of scripture. And then you decide. Well, it would be fun to examine more Christian liberties, but we're out of time. But here's the basic essence of what you need to leave here with from this series and from the message this morning. Keep key scriptures in mind when exercising your liberties in Christ. Remember to guard your heart and don't live on the edge of the cliff when exercising your liberties. Don't be taken captive by the legalism of others. And before you engage in any liberty, make sure it passes with the truth of God's word and that whole truth grid we set up. And especially specific texts which speak directly to that issue. So that you don't offend God and other people. And then just be fully convinced in your own mind. And do it. Or not do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which gives us so much good information about such a critical area. We can tell because of all the scriptures that address this area that it is important to you. As we all try to live together in unity and harmony. And yet each of us having different convictions and different understandings of your word. I pray that we would all seek to edify and build each other up, that we would not exercise our liberties to the harm of others unnecessarily. Father, that we would not be taken captive into legalism. And Father, that we would be able to honor and glorify you in all that we do. Father, thank you for um, just instructing us so thoroughly in your word. May we be able to absorb all these truths and use them in our lives each and every day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.